Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at North Kentucky University. I've admired Tyler Cowen's work for years, and so when he said he'd be happy to come on the show to talk about the complacent class, I was definitely excited. Now, adding considerably to the natural excitement you'll hear in my voice is the effect of the Sudafed I popped before the interview to deal with this cold I've managed to pick up. So if you're a longtime listener wondering, why does Mike sound so ramped up? Now you know. With that out of the way, here's my interview with Tyler Cowen. My guest today is Tyler Cohen. In addition to being a professor of economics at George Mason University, he blogs at Marginal Revolution, hosts the Conversations with Tyler podcast, is a regular contributor at Bloomberg View, and is the author of a number of books, including The Great Stagnation, An Economist Gets Lunch, which is my wife's personal favorite, Average is Over, and most recently, The Complacent Class, The Self-Defeating Quest for the American Dream, which recently came out in paperback. Uh, Tyler, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. You know, I thought we would start off, as as, uh, social scientists often do, by sort of defining our terms, or at least one of them. Uh, Obviously, the the key term, I would say, in the case of the complacent class is, well, the complacent class. So could we start by you sort of giving us an explanation of what you mean by that? The book as a whole, The Complacent Class, is about how Americans are less mobile than they used to be, how they take less risk. And overall, have they have they've lost the capacity to imagine a future very different from the present we know? The title itself, the complacent class, has a kind of inside joke to it. It's not any single class that's the complacent class, as in the rich or the poor or the well-educated. Uh, but we all have become the complacent class. So at lower levels of income, you see people living with their parents for longer periods of time, or maybe not looking for work at all. Uh, The overall rate at which we protest or even riot has gone down. Crime rates have gone down. Of course, that's a good thing. There's a lot to be said for complacency, but there's a negative side too. Uh, But also at higher income levels, uh, there's much more credentialism. The rate at which people start new businesses has fallen for decades. And there are many other phenomena that would apply to higher earning Americans. So in short, we're all the complacent class. Now, there are obviously a lot of ways to measure this, a lot of indicators of our increasing complacency, but are there any that you feel are particularly telling? Well, to me, the single best measure of complacency is uh, mobility across state lines is down consistently for decades. Americans are no longer restless to move, but also just productivity growth. Other than Silicon Valley in the tech sector, American productivity performance has been quite abysmal, and this makes our economy worse. It makes it harder to pay the bills. You see this showing up in many particular spheres of American life. It's really hard, say, to support a family on just one income in a lot of the uh, more desired places to live in this country, and uh, we're innovating less. Do you think the lack of mobility, I mean, obviously this is, you know, multiple things would determine this, but is it is it part because that just there are, because it used to be you would maybe move from the South to the North to get jobs in, say, the automobile industry or things like that. Is this sort of a reflection of the fact that there we don't really see these these pockets anymore outside of maybe some places like, I don't know, Austin or San Francisco? Oh, that's right. There were fewer booming pockets. And one of the booming booming pockets you mentioned, San Francisco, it costs so much to live there 
because we won't let people build more. Think of NIMBY as another manifestation of the complacent class. There's actually net migration out of San Francisco, even though it's been in the midst of one of the world's greatest technological revolutions ever. That's another illustration of this. There's been some movement into Texas. That's a good thing. Uh, but overall, you know, parts of the country are more like each other. So to be a dentist in Columbus, Ohio, or Denver, Colorado, it's just not that different. There aren't that many reasons to move, not that much dynamism. With the the issue of of the rents and uh, and building regulations and those sort of things, wouldn't it? I mean, you would think that it would be at least in part somewhat of a self-correcting problem when they when they would get too high and say San Francisco. I, I know that there are a number of people who have moved to places like. Austin. So will this eventually, do you think, just sort of take care of itself? Well, eventually is a tricky word. The economies of clustering seem to be stronger than we used to realize. So if you do tech, you really want to be in Silicon Valley or San Francisco and Austin or Brooklyn. There are other places which are, by the way, no longer so cheap themselves. Uh, but you don't have the same personal contacts, the same peer group, uh, the same people to talk to. So just how much a lot of our productivity relies on other product, productive people being around us, that's turned out to be really important. And, and I'm guessing that even, even now, Skype chats and things like that just can't take the place of the sort of face-to-face -face interactions that you would get in those areas. Some companies are rebelling against telecommuting, and there were all these books from the 90s, Death of Distance. Well, you don't see that in the rents. You really don't. Same is true for London, by the way. Now, there's one thing a lot of folks, at least especially on the left, I would say, look at is uh, median household income. And you talk about it in the complacent class, and you note that it's actually down since uh, the year 2000. I, I pulled up some data on that, but it, it seemed to me that if you draw a, a trend line, say from the 80s to the present, it actually is at least somewhat on the rise. In the last few years, there's been a, a pretty sharp increase it looks to me. And other folks would say, well, you know, households are smaller today and really CPI isn't the right measure to use. We should be using chain CPI instead of CPIU. And if you combine all that together, actually gains in median income are a lot greater than what, what are commonly reported. And I wanted to get your take on that. Well, the relevant question is still, what are gains like over the last, say, 40 years? compared to an earlier America. And it used to be that living standards almost doubled every generation. And no one thinks that's true anymore. Uh, if you look, say, at 1973, median household income since then is up a pretty meager amount. But I think the best comparison is simply male median wage, because we would all agree women are earning more, they're becoming more educated. Uh, it's not technological progress. It's just, you know, more people working. And male median wage is actually you know, where it was more or less around 1970. I agree that's a mismeasurement, but that such a mismeasurement is even possible, I think says it all. No one in 1970 expected that would be the case. One thing I'm wondering is to what extent are we, oh, I say responsible isn't quite the right word, but it seems to me, and this kind of gets into one of your previous books, The Great Stagnation, when you talk about the uh, the, the low-hanging fruit, uh, the, the, the simple things we could do to grow 
very quickly. Uh, it was uh, uh, technological innovations, smart, un un uneducated kids, and uh, a lot of land. And obviously, we, we ran out of, well, not ran out, but we kind of hit some barriers on a lot of those things, too. So I'm wondering if this, this sort of complacency, this lack of mobility and growth, if it's just sort of a natural phenomenon. Oh, very much so. You see a version of this in Japan and much of Western Europe. Uh, the countries that are selling a lot of natural resources to China, basically Canada, Australia, they've avoided it somewhat. Good for them. I would say that was a kind of exogenous luck. Uh, but people figure, well, if we can't have dynamism, we might as well be safe. And so we've dug ourselves in more and more. It's perfectly understandable as a response. Well, it, some people might actually push back on this and say, well, well wait a minute. I In the last, say, 10 years, we've seen over 10, 15 years, there's, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Google, the entire smartphone thing. And my world is very different, how I spend my time, what I do. And so how can you say that this isn't a dynamic country still when most of the big tech innovations are still coming out of the United States? Well, that part of our economy is dynamic. But if you compare that, say, to the 1920s, when there were also incredible revolutions in communications, radio, telephone, later television. Uh, we're trying to run like the fourth industrial revolution on one cylinder, which is the tech sector alone. And another issue with a lot of those tech innovations, they make leisure time much, much better. And they don't always make us that much more productive at work. They may even distract us at work. So we live in this world where just staying at home is so much nicer. Amazon brings you things. You stream Netflix. You know, you surf the Internet. Uh, but we're more inward looking, more passive as a result. If our lives are, I don't know, happier, better, there's been a lot of talk, of course, about how potentially uh, young men being so enthralled by great video games might actually be hurting the, the productivity stats and workforce participation stats and, and that sort of thing. Is that necessarily such a, a bad thing? I mean, how do we uh, account for, for that, uh, you know, greater enjoyment in free time in, as a, in, a, in these calculations? No, I don't think it's necessarily bad. Uh, but here's the thing. It can be rational for each individual, but bad for the collectivity. And the U.S. is a country where household savings is quite low. We have a lot of debt of different kinds. And uh, you can't pay off your debt with leisure time or with your Facebook account. So if we were, say, you know, more thrifty and more orderly, if we were in some ways more like Denmark, they're, in a sense, the masters of complacency. Maybe we could make it work. But I don't see that right now we're on a track to make it work. That, that point about it being individually maybe making sense, but collectively being a bad idea, sort of reminded me of some ideas you talked about in um, Stubborn Attachments, where it seemed to me you made a, a very strong case, a moral case, actually, for economic growth being a very critical thing for us to, to push for. Of course, you know, on the left, a lot of folks say, well, maybe growth is overrated and we don't really need growth and we should just be happy where we're at. But that doesn't really seem to me to be, to be your viewpoint. Yeah, societies without growth tend to decay and fall apart. And eventually they're conquered or they collapse under the weight of their own internal contradictions. So you often see the same with organizations. There's a sense of, you know, grow or die. And it's embedded in the nature of reality at multiple levels. 
One thing you mentioned in the book, uh, uh, the rise of monopolies, uh, oligopolies, as sort of part of this complacency. And there are a number of areas you point out, uh, cell phones, airlines, health insurers. Uh, and that also seems to me to be kind of a natural, maybe even almost inevitable, unless government steps in with some you know, strong antitrust uh, actions. And so I'm, I was wondering what you thought about that. I mean, are we doing enough in antitrust to try to help you know, uh, encourage competitive markets and all the good stuff that comes from competitive markets? Well, I think you have to look at that sector by sector. I mean, my nomination for the biggest villain would be the hospital sector. And there I feel uh, we haven't done enough. When it comes to cell phones, actually, since I wrote the book, even though it's not long ago, cell phone prices, prices for the services have really tumbled. And that appears to be a, a pretty positive trend showing that's a lot more competitive. So it really would depend on the area. Airlines, you have fewer companies flying. But in terms of the price behavior, uh, it appears to be entirely acceptable. So I'd just say it depends. Some areas, yes. So in some areas where there are what are sometimes called natural monopolies, I would imagine government regulation might make more sense then. But what's a natural monopoly? It's not always easy to tell by looking at it. Like you wouldn't obviously think a hospital would be one, but there are so many now, even pretty populated areas with basically maybe just two hospitals and the prices have gone up a lot. And it's the sort of service that if you can't pay for it, I mean, it's really a serious life problem. It's not like, oh, there's a monopoly in paper clips, so you have to use fewer of them. Uh, so again, I, I would start there. Healthcare costs have been a major problem for this country for a long time, and that's one reason for it. Yeah, another point of complacency you talk about, and this obviously hits home uh, for me in my profession, is education. And you point out, you know, at the top of the sort of the top of the pile for education rankings, it's the same list of schools year after year after year. And, and I'm wondering, what do you think drives that? And is that necessarily such a bad thing that Harvard is, you know, number one or number two for the last, ah, geez, probably 50, 60 years, if not more than that? Well, I think it shows how much that market is based on reputation and credentials and that there haven't been that many new ideas when it comes to how to do it. And I do think that's a sign of stagnancy. Harvard's a wonderful institution. Uh, but nonetheless, I find it striking, say, when professors get tenure, as far as we can measure it, they don't really start taking more chances. It seems to me something's wrong with that. All the talk is about safe spaces and universities. Uh, to some extent, that's justifiable. But I also think people develop an expectation that nothing said should ever harm them or be something uncomfortable to them. And I think that's another manifestation of this complacency. Now, we weren't always like this. I mean, uh, and so obviously the question becomes, well, what happened? And so the, again, in the book, you talk about a lot of factors, but I'm wondering, which would you single out as being primarily responsible for this increase in complacency? Well, first and foremost, we exhausted a lot of the low-hanging fruit that we had after the end of World War II, and that was a natural development. We grew wealthier and more risk-averse. But I would say the other, this is a kind of pure coincidence, that at the same time, we get all these tech innovations that make staying at home more attractive relative to being out there in some way. And, and another part of this is uh, something I, didn't, I really didn't expect is segregation. And you point out a number of ways that segregation is actually on the rise. And uh, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about 
what sort of segregation you see on the rise and why we should be concerned about it. I mean, assuming we should, of course. Uh, there are many types of segregation. One is segregation by income. So that is much stronger today than several decades ago. Rich people live next to other rich people, poorer people next to others. There are fewer mixed neighborhoods. There's a fair amount of research that implies this is probably bad for upward mobility. Another kind of segregation, of course, is racial. Uh, there the picture is more complicated. Some parts of America, such as the suburbs, are more integrated. Uh, that's a positive development in my view. But both a lot of cities, expensive cities, and many parts of the South, there's really much less racial integration than there had been, say, in the 1990s. And I think that is a sign uh, America is not solving much of its race problem. I wouldn't say it's proof, but overall, to me, that is a negative development. And it, it seems to me that's related to something else you talk about very much is, is matching, which is, is something, of course, that most people really like, being able to be matched up with a neighborhood or, or a potential partner or music or, or news that they like. The positives are pretty clear, uh, but you also look at the negative consequences. And, and one of those, at least one really important one, I think, is that matching seems to exacerbate inequality. Uh, it allows the top businesses, the most successful people to attract like people. And uh, I was wondering if there's anything we can really do about that. I mean, it seems to me that as long as we have this technology, the top businesses are naturally going to use it. And there's sort of an inevitable inequality that comes from this. Uh, that's correct. You see this in the productivity data, like the productive firms have improved a lot and a lot of laggard firms are more or less operating at the same level. The productive ones are now sometimes called super firms. Uh, I don't know any direct fix for this. Obviously, if there are ways you can stimulate firms, institutions, households uh, at lower levels of income or productivity to, to do more catch up, uh, that would be good. That's easier said than done. You know, there are big benefits to concentrating that talent and having, say, Silicon Valley produce so much tech is one of those. But I think there are benefits and costs. Uh, and just at least some part of this, I feel we should be concerned about. There's been like a talent drain, a talent drain from rural America also. Uh, regions tend to be like winner regions or loser regions. There's not catch up the way we saw in the data in earlier decades. And you notice this when you drive around America, I think, or even look at how people vote. Yeah, and, and it seems to me one one approach to solving this, and some on the left would like this, is, is sort of the way that a lot of professional sports leagues have handled it, is when there's too much of a concentration of talent, they impose uh, a what's sometimes called a luxury tax, say in the NBA, or they have drafts where the where the last pick first and the first pick last and that sort of thing. But but I'm, I'm guessing that you wouldn't be advocating anything like that for, for the economy as a whole. Well, I think we should be open to all sorts of ideas. Uh, but at least immediately, I'm not sure how analogs would work. So you could have like a really bad firm, you know, have the right to sort of draft or hire the best students out of Harvard. It just seems like you're misallocating talent and you have to infringe on people's freedoms. So I really would like that we all talk about more creative solutions. Uh, but these are hard problems to solve. Yeah, yeah without a doubt. Now, uh, one thing you mentioned earlier, and it's something that really surprised me, uh, is how much more uh, docile we've become. Uh, you point out, this is an amazing statistic, is during an 18-month period in 1971 to 1972, there were an average of five domestic bombings every day. Uh, 
And of course, in the past few decades, we, we don't see anything like that. We haven't seen anything like the Watts riots in the 60s or the L.A. riots in 92. Uh, we get these mostly peaceful demonstrations. Now, granted, there are sometimes injuries and even deaths, but it's a lot milder. Why is that? Some of it is that police technique has become better. Uh, some of it is crime in general has fallen for reasons we don't always understand. But I think overall, America looked at itself, saw the mid to late 60s, the early 70s, and just said, you know, this cannot continue. You had candidates on the right running against crime, promising to be tough, uh, with some costs also. But they did actually get the level of crime down. And I think Americans overall thought, well, this is a good bargain. I think we've taken that bargain too far, in essence. It's not that I want more crime per se, but I think we've invested uh, too much in safety. And we, we think the level of crime is much higher than it is. Uh, and the 60s uh, were a much more dynamic time than today by most measures, including what you would call America's cultural presence in the world. And there are some people who would say that we've gone too far in, I guess, uh, not in squelching crime, but with the militarization of police forces. And certainly there have been so many cases that, you know, that have come to light in the media of, of police uh, seemingly in using improper force in, in, in murders or manslaughter and what have you. And so do you, do you think that that's been part of this sort of overreaction? Uh, of course. Safety? And too much incarceration, too many long terms. Uh, you know, prosecutors throwing the book at people more, plea bargains becoming tougher. Uh, all of these, to me, are dangerous steps in, in down the wrong direction, even though obviously there are some benefits to having more people locked up. Well, I was going to ask you about the, the number of people we have locked up. I, I think our incarceration rate is right now the, the highest in the world, I believe. And it seems to me that that represents a massive loss of human potential, right? And it's just a failure. I mean, even if you think many of those people need to be there, which of course is the case, we failed at some earlier stage uh, in terms of creating opportunity for others. And, and some would argue that many of the people who are in, in prison for uh, relatively minor nonviolent drug offenses, for instance, could be, instead of wards of the state, could be out uh, uh, in jobs, earning money, contributing to our overall productivity. And of course, they're not. You know, there are companies out there that are doing more to try to hire ex-cons, uh, people who want to ensure that uh, formerly convicted felons still have voting rights. All, all of those are very positive movements, and I'm happy to see we have as much of them as we do. I think those deserve much more support. Now, there are some people, though, who might argue that, well, it's true that these these riots that caused billions of dollars in damage or hundreds of millions of dollars in damage in these deaths were horrific things, but that that's the sort of thing that can sort of galvanize the public and create an environment for change the way that a sort of a peaceful demonstration where everyone just sort of mills around and, and speaks angry words and then goes home at the end of the day really can't. Uh, do you think there's anything to that? Well, something, you know, I want to steer people away from the mentality of thinking that the level of violence in a society is a kind of lever they can push and pull on. And they can ask, should it be more? Should it be less? I mean, there are things we can do to influence it. I think we've gone too far in terms of being paranoid. But one of the lessons of the book is people make these individual decisions that are really hard or maybe even undesirable for the collectivity to control. And that's going to set a lot of what happens in society. And this movement toward complacency, it's been so strong, so multidimensional. 
uh, it's very hard to fight against it. There's an overwhelmingness to it, so many different dimensions. Uh, and I think in a way that's the more important perspective than kind of sitting in your armchair and trying to adjust the lever, you know, how much disorderliness for next year, sir? And then you do some kind of careful calculus. We don't have those choices. Now, sort of as a contrast to the United States, you look at China. Uh, growth rates and economic mobility obviously are a lot higher. Uh, and there are plenty of people who would say, well, well, see, we need to do something because China's going to you know, eat our lunch in the years to come. But but again, and, and I'm, I'm coming off maybe as a horrible pessimist here, uh, it seems to me that this trend might be somewhat inevitable. Going back to the great stagnation, and you, know, you, you look at the low-hanging fruit, they have plenty of smart and educated kids, uh, uh, plenty of land still, technological breakthroughs with all those people that they're educating. I mean, I would think China as well as India, they still have plenty of room there where we just don't. And so given that, uh, is sort of the economic ascendancy of China and India in the, I don't know, in the 21st century, more or less inevitable, do you think? Well, I think it's highly likely. The word inevitable makes me a little nervous. Yeah. But they are already subsidizing our complacency with their own work, their own risk-taking. And areas like artificial intelligence, drones, biomedicine, I wouldn't quite say China's ahead of us, but they're possibly on the verge of being ahead of us. And just like the United States in some ways subsidized how the United Kingdom uh, wanted to live during the 20th century, China, and to a lesser extent, India will do that for the U.S. I mean, the good news is they're working for us. That's great. It's good for them. Uh, but the bad news is we will be able to postpone facing hard decisions about our own future. Now, is it? I mean, a lot of people would look at this in terms of it being a zero-sum game. And I'm wondering, is it necessarily a bad thing for the United States if China or India become greater economic powers relative to the United States? It's mostly a good thing. The economic side is pretty clearly positive sum. And a lot of America's poorest people, when they shop at dollar stores or Walmart, I mean, they're buying cheap goods basically from China. It's why they've actually seen more real income growth than a lot of the middle class. Uh, the problem, I would say, is the military dimension, which is not at all what my book is about. And I don't know how we should handle that. But just on the economic side, it's clearly very positive sum. I'm not sure, say, for people who live in Taiwan, it's entirely right. comforting in every way. Yeah. One argument, of course, would be that the stronger our economic ties, the less likely there is to be any sort of military uh, engagement. People used to say that, but I don't think it's believed anymore because really? China still seems expansionist. And there's a lot of countries we trade plenty with, uh, including Russia, more before sanctions. And those countries haven't liberalized and have done some bad things. So I would say that one's, you know, up for grabs. Hmm. I'm wondering, uh, off of that, do you think that China, I mean, I think about what China's doing in that region of the country, and you could per perhaps draw some parallels to what the United States did in in sort of our region of the world when we were becoming the, the great economic power of the, of the 20th century or so. So maybe it's just sort of limited to that region. They want to have greater influence in their own backyard, just like we did 100 or so years ago. Did and still do. Yeah. You know, the Monroe Doctrine has never been repealed. So I agree. I think the parallels are striking, but that doesn't mean they're comforting. Right. The <laughs> sure. uh, U.S. has had a lot of war in its history and for its rise, and we don't want China to have to have the same. So... People on the left, especially, like to talk a lot about 
intergenerational mobility, and that's how likely you are to stay in the same income quartile as your parents, arguing that's a good way to measure opportunity. Uh, a while back on the show, I talked to uh, Jacob, Jacob Hacker, who's a political scientist, and he, his argument is that it's not just that mobility is down in the United States, but that mobility in the United States is down relative to other countries like us, rich, developed countries. And so from that, he concludes that this isn't just something that has happened, but it's the result of policies, and, and he looks to conservative policies, that we have made in the last 20, 30, 40 years here in the United States. And, and I'm wondering if you agree with that. I only agree with some of it. I agree that intergenerational mobility is down, and this is bad. Uh, I think there's one big part of that that's not being measured, and that's that the U.S. successfully absorbs so many immigrants and vastly boosts their mobility. That's not picked up in these numbers. But still, the fact that it's down for native-born Americans ought to concern us. I don't think, you know, in fact, if you consider everything, it's down relative to Denmark. I think that's a mismeasurement. Uh, I'm not sure policy is the main reason why it is down. Uh, if you look at social welfare expenditures through the welfare state, Kevin Drum, who writes for Mother Jones, a left-wing outlet, I mean, that's basically more or less a straight line upwards, you know, for decades. Now, maybe we're spending the money the wrong way, but it's just much harder for a large, very diverse society with a lot of federalism to fix many of its local problems than would be the case, say, in Denmark or Sweden. So do you, do you think that uh, there are any countries that are good benchmarks for us, or are we just so unique as in the United States that we really don't have any countries we can reasonably compare us ourselves to in some of these statistics? Well, the best benchmark is Brazil, and we beat them hands down. Okay. So, you know, of the large countries in the world, the really large countries, we're the only one that's well-governed. Uh, now, we ought to be more like the smaller countries. I, I think that's a good aspiration. Uh, it's just not easy to do. And when we rely on federalism, I find often a lot of our states disappoint us and they resort to nimbyism and barriers. You see this also in terms of whether, you know, whether people can vote. That's a symbol of other things, in my view. So the traditional American federalism, let the states compete, they'll all sort it out. I don't think that's quite working right now. So uh, our federalism maybe is overrated is one way to think about our problems. So, so then you, that would suggest that more uh, solutions at the national level for action from Congress rather than waiting for states to do certain things, I guess, especially with these sort of NIMBY issues. I wrote a column for Bloomberg not that long ago where I argued occupational licensing, which now occurs at the city, state, and sometimes county levels, that should just all be federalized. You know, some things need licenses. Fine. Let's agree on that. But let's not have every city, you know, be requiring licenses for dog walkers, interior designers and so on. I think that's just limiting opportunity. And it seems like that's one of those things that reasonable people would say, well, of course. And yet states, that's that's always been a core function of the states. And I, I think politically that would just be incredibly difficult to do. Yes, I'm an impractical man in many ways. <laughs> Now, part of, uh, well, before I forget, you mentioned Brazil. I kind of let that go, but I know listeners are going to want to say, well, wait a second, Brazil? Why Why would you compare us to Brazil? So I, I have to ask you that. Well, Brazil was richer than the what are now the United States in the middle of the 18th century. Uh, colonized by Europeans, a history with slavery, a multi-ethnic society, 
large numbers of immigrants coming in the early 20th century. Physically, Brazil is not quite as large as the U.S., but it's pretty big. It's almost comparable. They have 200 million people, give or take, not as many as we have. But again, if you're looking for a comparison country, that's clearly it. And my goodness, I mean, we're doing much better than they are. Part of the problem, one of the many parts of the problem, is that the biggest part of our federal budget is locked in through these mandatory spending programs. That's mostly Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid. And even though defense spending isn't mandatory, it's really, I would say, essentially. Oh, it is. Yeah. yeah. Pensions and personnel and weapon systems, procurement cycle. It's very locked in. Yeah. So, I mean, that only leaves us right around 17 percent of the budget that can be changed in yearly appropriations, which clearly makes it a lot harder to change things up in response to changes in the environment. But that's the downside. But it seems to me that the other side of this is that this is part of our making long-term commitments to, well, some of our most vulnerable citizens. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you think that's a worthwhile trade-off. Well, keep in mind, net transfers in this country go to the elderly who are wealthier than the average. Now, many of the elderly do, in fact, need what they get uh, but these are by no means entirely progressive transfers from the point of view of equ equality. Uh, that said, I don't think we're ever going to stop doing them uh, for the most part. So we are truly locked in to imagine something like the space program being done today or the Manhattan Project. Uh, it's simply no longer possible. And those were two of our greatest achievements. The Manhattan Project was several percent of GDP at its peak. And we did build an atom bomb that won World War II. And if the Nazis had gotten it first, you know, my goodness. And then to put a man on the moon in basically seven years from scratch. I mean, we can't like even build a bridge in seven years or maybe not even 17 years. So that just shows how much we've changed in terms of overall bureaucratization. And a lot of people who make this point are on the right or conservatives, libertarians. And, you know, I share their concerns, but the left should be just as worried, like for government to do what the left wants it to do, it's so, so hard because we regulate government itself so much. And of course, the answer, generally speaking on the left is, well, tax rates are far too low and we can go much higher, like the rates that we had in the, in the 1950s and even the 1960s. And so when that would take care of a lot of problems, though, I'm, I'm guessing that's not your preferred solution. Well, I would say it's a separate debate how high taxes should be. But I'll, I would stress this, that if you don't change our culture and laws today and all you do is raise taxes, you will not get what you want from that bargain. Now, one section of your book is uh, democracy or is democracy dead? And you, in that section, you take a look at the world's three largest political economic units, China, which is obviously undemocratic. Right. Uh, the EU is democratic, but it's this kind of technocratic sort of thing run out of, you know, central headquarters and and they have a non-democratic central bank. And then we have the U.S. where we just pointed out the majority of our spending is locked in and we have our own very powerful, semi-independent, uh, you know, not very democratically accountable central bank. And of course, a lot of people say, well, that this loss of democratic rule, uh, if you will, is is a, is a big problem. But when I read that, it made me think about uh, your colleague, Brian Kaplan, and, and his, yes. his book on economic irrationality, his great book, uh, The Myth of the Rational Voter. And, you know, so I'm wondering, well, is less democracy, at least in some areas, necessarily such a bad thing? You know, I'm more sympathetic toward the idea of having more democracy than Brian is. 
But that said, there are clearly areas where we should have less. Should we be electing all these judges and dog catchers? I would say obviously no. Should the Federal Reserve be run by referendum? I would say obviously no. Uh, so if you ask, you know, where we're at right now, I think America is the one big part of the world that really has kept a democratic system compared to the EU or China. And I would say how well that's going to go, like it really is up to us. And this is one of the things on the line here. In addition to wanting better lives for ourselves, our children and all of that, like we're kind of fighting for democracy. And if our model fails, we're flushing a lot of loyalty to democracy down the toilet. And I just hope people take that very seriously. Yeah, absolutely. And at the same time, you know, I don't want to elect every judge or California referenda. I think that's a bad system. So it's not that I always want to make politics more democratic. But the EU has gone too far in its direction. There's plenty of rebellion against that. Of course, China uh, should hope to evolve to be more democratic. And well, and in this country, of course, in in the book, uh, you you know suggested maybe the election of Donald Trump is part of what might be a growing rebellion against well this complacency. And 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 certainly that makes sense to me. That and you look at Brexit and a number of other things. But it also seems to me there's another way to look at the election of, of President Trump. I want to get your take on it. Um, that it was sort of the you know the last the last gasp, if you will, of old white guys. And if you take a look at the election, the 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 the, the polls after the election, you say the under thirty, the non-white vote demographics. I mean, they went pretty clearly, pretty strongly for Hillary Clinton, who I would say is without a doubt sort of a complacent class elite poster person. Um, so is, is, that, is that a reasonable alternate explanation? Well, I see both candidates as serving complacency. Think of Trump's main slogan, make America great again. Very backward looking. It used to be the new frontier, the great society, very forward looking. Uh, Trump himself, he doesn't know that much policy detail. Uh, a lot of what he does is rhetoric, which can be offensive, but a lot of the policies are not actually that dramatic. It turns out we're going to stay in NAFTA, which I'm happy about, I might add, but you know, no big change there. There's talk of getting back into TPP again. Again, good news, I would say. Uh, sometimes I call Trump a kind of placebo president, like the rhetoric is the placebo for his supporters. And what you actually get is a lot more ordinary but combined uh, with some degree of offensiveness and polarization than maybe what had been promised. Yeah, with, without a doubt in the polarization and offensiveness. Um, you uh, still have Obamacare, whether you like that or yeah. not, right? You know, many things just aren't changing that much. And, and certainly, in part, I would just because the president has been frustrated in some ways at getting his agenda through uh, uh, our, our institutional system of, of checks and balances, if not really something he seems all that comfortable with, I guess I would say. But, well, let me be optimistic for a minute here. Um, I, my optimistic version of the future is that in my lifetime, and I'm 49 now, so barring you know, being hit by a bus or something, uh, I see advances in artificial intelligence and biotechnology and fields like that potentially bringing us an era of really massive growth. And, okay, maybe it will increase inequality because all this stuff will go to the rich first, certainly. But, also, it has the potential to lift up everyone so much that inequality just doesn't matter all that much. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in other words, I guess I'm, I'm saying it's a, it's a future that technology lets us have both the safety and security that we have now, along with a lot more material prosperity. Uh, and 
Am I being too optimistic? (laughs) Uh, Probably not. I share that vision. I think it's coming. I don't know when. I don't know how quickly. But I do see a kind of race going on. On the other side of the ledger are growing debts, a decline in the quality of our governance, and the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction around the world. So which side of that balance is going to win the race? I find that very difficult to predict. So you said you're somewhat optimistic. Uh, I wonder, though, do you think, barring you know military conflicts and things like that, which certainly are, are a possibility, do you think that that the revolt, the signs of revolt against complacent class that that you mention in the book, uh, Donald Trump, even if he is kind of a force for nostalgia or complacency, but Brexit and things like that, kind of a revolt against the elites, I guess you could say. Do you see that continuing and kind of leading us to some place of chaos and then maybe a new normal emerging from that? That's what I see. As you know, I predicted that in the book. It's been happening much more quickly than I had predicted, because I wrote that part of the book before I thought Trump would win, uh, before Brexit, for that matter. So I kind of, if you kind of read into my tone, there's a feeling of, well, five, seven years from now, these sorts of things will start happening, and they happen in less than a year. Yeah. And, and so I guess we're in for certainly a very difficult transition period, a period of, I don't know if you want to call it creative creative destruction exactly, but uh, then hopefully we stabilize at a, at a, at a different, better level. Uh, I expect that. I think that's the most likely scenario. We go through our own new version of the 60s and 70s. People get very upset about it, uh, but we do reemerge on the other side with a new complacency also. Yeah. Well, and that, that kind of brings me to uh, one of the, the questions I had about, well, about the Hyman Minsky, and you mentioned him in the book and his financial instability hypothesis, which basically, uh, uh, to, to oversimplify, stability is inherently destabilizing. Good times lead to complacency, and then that inevitably results in a pushback and a crash. And it seems to me that in the book, you tie this into sort of a, a broader, more cyclical view of history, you know, great powers rise and, fall, rise and fall and progress, you know, advances and retreats and so forth. And that's sort of in opposition to what I would call maybe a Steven Pinkerish sort of view, that things are just almost inexorably getting better and better all the time and will kind of continue to do that. And so, I mean, uh, I guess, though, in the end, it seems to me that you do think that even though there are fits and starts, that progress is, well, maybe not inevitable, that, that word makes you uncomfortable, but the future will be brighter than the present. Odds are that's the case. And certainly in the world's emerging economies, that very clearly seems true. Well, I think on that optimistic note, I think I'll, I'll end right there. Uh, Tyler Cohen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. My pleasure. Thank you for the conversation. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Support from listeners just like you is what keeps the show going, and we truly do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon or PayPal links you'll see there. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast app you use. Share this episode with your friends and followers, and pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also helps. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where you can message us and where we post things throughout the week, is facebook.com slash politicsguyspage. 
We're also on Twitter, at Politics Guys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorf, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.